0: This is Research Software Engineer Stories, coming straight at you from USRSC, the U.S. Research Software Engineer Association. Welcome to RSC Stories. I'm Vanessa Socket, and joining me today is Anna Trishavich, a data engineer in the Harvard Biostatistics Department. Anna creates software and workflows for data processing and offers a unique perspective on this aspect of research software engineering that we haven't really gotten a chance to talk about on the podcast before. So first, welcome to RSC Stories.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Okay, so before we jump into your new role in data engineering, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you found this line of work?
1: I had an interest in science actually from a very early age. The scientist Marie Curie was my first role model and I really wanted to become a chemist or a physicist. Kind of first time when I got to actually do some sciencey things was in the Petnica Science Center in Serbia, where I'm from. The science center, they organize summer schools and seminars in physics and in other disciplines, and there actually I also got to write my first paper. And then I went to the university and studied two programs. So I did a computer science degree and also a mechanical uh, general engineering degree. And then at the last year of the study, I found out about an opportunity to join Microsoft Development Center, Serbia, in the new team. So that was a completely new team, newly formed team, so data science team. And that is immediately what they kind of like really sparked my attention For data science. So, I think maybe that is also because I was not really motivated to work on like operating systems that was in the typical coursework. And when I found out about this opportunity, I did a lot of research on data science. And also, I found out about a course. So, mine, this was like 10 years ago. So, there was not really so many things online on data science 10 years ago. But I found the MIT OpenCourseWare course on data science. So that was actually not data science, but it was some sort of data analysis. And that open course for actually influenced me in two important things. So the first thing, Python for the first time. And that was kind of like the love on first sight. And even today, my love for Python is going strong. And the second thing, I was just mind blown that I was able to see this course, not only from a different country, but from a different continent. And that really influenced my view on open science and open source software and open data. So that was I was very grateful that I was able to see this course and to go through it. And of course, my enthusiasm for data science was recognized at uh, my interviews at Microsoft, and I got the job. That was my first job as a data science associate. Soon after that, I actually got an opportunity to join CERN. So that is the European Organization for Nuclear Research and the Laboratory in Switzerland. And I joined as a technical student. So that was the first time I left Serbia. And I was thinking like, I'm leaving only for the summer. But the truth is I have not yet come back. And then as a technical student at CERN, I was working on an educational application that visualizes particle collisions in the LHCB experiment. And that is one of the big CERN experiments. So that was very exciting. And kind of like one thing there led to another. I got an opportunity to do a PhD at the University of Cambridge and CERN on a very novel topic. And that novel topic was data preservation and reproducibility in physics research. So kind of like the idea is that as experimental hardware evolves and the software and the data changes with this hardware and software, how do we capture all of these changes year by year so that we can conduct physics research on both this new and old data? And that was, well, nine years ago. So there was also not much literature on reproducibility back then. And of course, I found out then about virtual containers, about automation, about databases and the ways how we can capture these data processes. So that was very exciting and interesting and also scary because not many people worked on that. At the end of my PhD, I worked on many smaller projects that kind of like revolve around this idea of preservation, data management, and reproducibility. And in the last year of my PhD, I was hired at the CERN Open Data Group. So that is kind of like more of the public-facing project. But then there is another one that's a CERN Analysis Preservation. And there I worked with a group of people on the developments of the platforms. And these projects were kind of like general projects at CERN. So I was a little bit of a liaison person speaking about my experience from LHCB, from one of the experiments to the rest of the team. So that was also exciting. And yeah, my then experience at CERN was great and fun, but then I wanted to also experience something else. I wanted to go to the States. Then I applied for postdocs in the States and got a postdoc at University of Chicago with the energy policy institute and the library so that was exciting and that was a very valuable experience because for the first time i worked with different types of data so the thing is that this group works with geospatial and climate data and socioeconomic data which is something that i have not seen before so i was working only with physics data which you know you cannot hurt anyone Sharing physics data. At UChicago, I for the first time learned about strict data licenses and policies and how we need to be careful how we share data and potentially sensitive data. So that was also really fun and valuable experience. And then after some time, I, through a long-term collaborator, I found out that there is a postdoc opening at Harvard to work with Dataverse data repository team. And that was also really interesting to me. I then moved to Boston. The idea behind my work at Dataverse is that we noticed that on a data repository that the code is present in an increasing number of data sets every year. And then kind of like the idea behind my work is how do we better support research software and code in data repositories? So at Dataverse, I conducted several reproducibility experiments and found out that we cannot re-execute easily more than 50% of the code files in these replication packages. So these are bundles of data and code, and that is really alarming. And then I kind of like thought about this and thought how we can maybe incorporate better metadata for code containers. And you also gave a presentation on containers on singularity at one of the Dataverse community meetings. So that was also kind of like in an effort to balance the way how we can capture code and also transparency that we want to provide with code reuse. Yeah. And then after that, I got a new job at national studies of air pollution and health at Harvard biostatistics. And I effectively work as a data engineer. So I integrate many different data sets that the group works with. Yeah, so here we are now.
0: And here we are now. So yeah. I have a lot of questions from that. So in the beginning, you kind of mentioned that, you know, operating systems wasn't something that you were interested in working on. And to me, that kind of hinted that maybe you didn't fully enjoy or connect with parts of your computer science training. Was that the case or something else?
1: It is one of the hardest courses, I think, in the computer science program operating system and this kind of like sort of like low-level coding That's not as fun as Python coding. So for example, one of the things why Python was so interesting to me and why I I was so stoked about it is the fact that before that I was coding in C++ and I considered C++ to be my first language, my primary language. And then with Python, I kind of felt that everything works out of the box. So I think that the similar thing was also with data science versus maybe systems engineering is that you can see things kind of like inspect them understand them better they're more intuitive is your experience similar
0: yeah and actually the reason i asked is because i took an early kind of introduction cs course in college and i just didn't connect with it i didn't enjoy it i had this feeling like this isn't for me and i think there's this larger problem probably that it's taught for a particular kind of person and There are people like myself, like yourself, that really eventually fell in love with it through some other means, but through the traditional avenues, like, for example, for me, I didn't choose to take that path because I just totally couldn't connect to it.
1: I completely agree with that. And that is also kind of similar because I think that that's why also why I find this community of research software engineers really valuable also, because I know when I was at CERN, so there are really... big group of physicists right but I couldn't call myself a physicist I don't know physics and then there's also people from my school who went to work in Google or Facebook and they were like real software engineers but then I couldn't also call myself a real software engineer I didn't feel like that so then kind of like for a long time I was like somewhere in between kind of dealing with different data sets creating coding scripts workflows and I couldn't like really find a good title for, m- for myself. And that's why I feel that this research software engineering community is so valuable because kind of like gathers all these different roles relating to both research and software development that can be like really diverse in what people do.
0: I totally agree. I, I had that same sentiment as well. So you started working in data science at Microsoft. What inspired you to sort of jump from this more industry role to CERN? which I guess we call an international lab.
1: I loved it in Microsoft. The team was great. And I think it was very exciting because we had this like new data science team. And of course, you get the free food and the perks of being in the industry. Well, I think that it was curiosity. It was curiosity. I knew that CERN was maybe not an amazing fit to me as I was not a physicist, but it was a curiosity to see the particle collider and also to see what kind of science is done there to explore Switzerland and France. That was very exciting, and that's why I did it. And I, of course, very much do not regret it. It was a fantastic experience.
0: So let's talk a little bit more about data engineering. My observation is that it tends to be an undervalued role, at least in terms of hiring and groups usually let it go to the wayside. They throw their data onto some HPC cluster and kind of cross their fingers and hope it works out. Can you kind of walk us through some of the main tasks of a data engineer and tell us why they're so important?
1: I think that that role is not yet really recognized very much and even the term data engineer I only found out about that like not so long ago. And for example, I can really speak from the experience from my group, which is really interesting and a really great example of what a data engineer does. So, for example, at CERN, there is this experiments in the Big Particle Collider. And at CERN, the analysts are doing what is called a primary collection, so primary data analysis. So they collect their data. And they are aware what is the data format and how this data is going to look like. There are no surprises there. However, many other groups and also my group and also other groups do secondary data analysis, which means that they constantly are on a lookout for new data sets that they can use. And if there is a new exciting data set, then there's going to be somebody in the group who wants to use it. So essentially all the data is looked as treasure (laughs) and the challenge is how, when we have all these different data sets, how do we integrate them together so that they can be easily used and analyzed? So for example, in my group, we have medical data. So that's kind of like a whole new challenge working with this medical data. So that's uh, Medicare and Medicaid. So these are the two largest health providers in the States. And there is also, because the group is working on air pollution, so then we have air pollution data sets, so these are concentrations of the pollutants, so ozone, ground-level ozone, and then fine particular matter, so that's PM 2.5 particles, concentration of them. And then there are also data sets on population, so census, there is also data sets on climate and weather, so temperature, and so on. And there are also data sets on satellite. So, for example, you know, smoke levels or vegetation levels for so green spaces. So, these are just maybe some of the most used data sets, but there are also other ones. And they all come from different data sources. And of course, they come in different spatial and temporal resolution. And there is, and the massive challenge is kind of integrating all of these data sets. And, you know, each data set has its own problems. The data is never clean, never complete. They kind of like need to be all aggregated in the same way so that statistical and uh, epidemiological analysis can be done on them. And this can be like a really fun problem to solve with, kind of like creating this data pipelines and workflows, but it is also sometimes a little bit frustrating. So in my job i create data pipelines so that is first data cleaning integration and also we do that as you mentioned on hpc Uh, so we do hpc computing and me personally having the background on reproducible research and wanting everything to be reproducible and automatized. I will also try to create these pipelines in in such a way that they can be easily reused. And then also like in the other academic and research work, I will sometimes maybe contribute to grant writing or data analysis, uh, hopefully more uh, in the future also kind of like thinking about the big picture of how we want to keep our data sets, how we want to organize and catalog the data, how we want to create also instructions for the group, and what tools to recommend for data analysis. So I think that is a particular challenge in the academic and the research world, the world because this like turnaround of people is really fast. So we will uh, fast have like new set of students or new set of researchers, who will just need to start from scratch and learn everything, how to work with data, how to work with the new software from point zero.
0: How easy or hard is it to jump to a new domain that has data sets with different potentially policy and formats software? And then when you do that, can you kind of talk to us how hard or easy it is to create standards in terms of automated processing pipelines or organizations?
1: it is challenging to learn to work with new datasets. Every, you know, every dataset is different and you would want to first read all the documentation and understand like the formats and how to parse everything correctly. Especially when it comes to this like super sensitive datasets or datasets with strict policies, data breaches are not like extremely uncommon, especially given that there is this like fast turnaround of people and then Sometimes it just like sadly happens that some things are maybe a little bit done correctly and then we need to solve that. Maybe someone will share some like sensitive information on GitHub, accidentally push, and then we need to rewrite all the Git history. So that maybe have happened. (laughs) But yeah, when it comes to the standards, I completely agree that different groups will use different standards. One thing that I noticed is that I think that it is really helpful And also like a good practice to use Python, to use R, which are, you know, free and open source and easy to use and learn. And there is like a plenty of resources on Python and R. The open source community is very proactive and really fun to engage. But then there are also groups that will use some proprietary software and that will also maybe save export data in proprietary file formats, which is not so easy then to share and to reuse. So, yeah, I think that maybe I would say that when it comes to standards, I think that probably it's a good common denominator that people are using Python and R as free software. So that's kind of like more common and also more interdisciplinary.
0: So places to put data, you mentioned accidentally pushing to Git, and I'd imagine some data sets are small enough that they could store in a Git repository, but I also know that you know as we collect more and more data, there's just so much of it, and a lot of it isn't just going to fit in Git. Can you tell us about the range that you see in terms of scale and how you tackle storing and organizing some of the largest data sets?
1: GitHub is a software repository, and data should not be Well, published on GitHub. But then also the thing is that the research groups oftentimes do not know what to do with their data. Maybe they will want to share it on like Dropbox or Google Drive and then kind of like have it sit there. The correct answer to do that is that there are data repositories. There are data repositories that are domain-specific, but also data repositories that are general purpose and can store many different types of data sets. And one of the data repository... So, okay, I mentioned that I was previously with the CERN Open Data that publishes CERN data, but now... Currently, I am also with the Dataverse repository that is a general purpose repository where researchers can share data for free. And this is a a right place to do it. Why? Because when depositing this data set, the repository will ask you to document it in the metadata, which is data about the data. So kind of like adding necessary information to document this data set. And then also the dataset will be versioned, and that is something also automatically incorporated in data repositories. It will be citable, so all the citation level information will be there, so one can then reference it and reuse it. And of course, the repositories themselves will do a lot of work on making this dataset even better. So there are, for example, FAIR principles, so making data findable, accessible, interoperable, and reusable online. And that is something that repositories themselves implement. And of course, to researchers, I will say that it is always better to use open formats, maybe text-based formats, when wanting to share data, especially because they are easy to use and also easy to compress. And when it comes to really big data set, it will not be straightforward to upload maybe one massive data set. But then in collaboration with uh, repositories, maybe the institutional repository or other repositories, that will be still possible. And uh, also one more thing that I want to say, for example, in my group. So there are maybe, I don't know, 100 people in the group and the data sets are frequently reused. So, for example, one data set that is very nicely formatted and really nice to work with and really easy to work with will be reused several times. And then the thing is that if this data set was already registered in a data repository, then all of these researchers who reuse the data set would be able to, to cite it. So the group would be able to collect citations on this data set. And I think that then this number of citation is also valuable for the group to show how maybe productive they are or to show when, you know, applying for grants and so on. So that's also one reason why you would want to use data repositories instead of GitHub or other places to store code.
0: Yeah, and reuse is huge. I remember back in graduate school, there was this kind of obsession to like publish everything out of your data before you share it. And even as a young grad student, then I would try to tell people like, well, if you publish the data set and you do a really good job at that, you're going to get a heck of a lot of citations just from that.
1: Yeah, exactly. And then maybe that also invites collaborations because maybe, you know, depending on the data set, maybe they will want to also reuse some code or understand kind of like how the data set was created exactly, maybe some nuances. And then maybe you will get a collaborator and a new paper just by having shared your uh, data set. Yeah.
0: Okay. So hopefully this next question is a little bit of fun. If you imagine that a data set is like a little living creature, like a little squirrel or something, and you imagine that it has a life cycle from when it's created all the way into maybe death, but maybe not death. Maybe a data set doesn't die. It just kind of goes and, and hangs out in an archive. Can you walk us through the life cycle of a data set?
1: We can kind of like when it comes to data processing and data integrations, we can typically the starting point is that the data set will be the most granular. And then kind of like as the analysis progresses or the life cycle of the research process, then this data set is going to be like more cut and cut and cut and more reformatted. And kind of like smaller and smaller and smaller. And then in the end, it will be just a small table in a paper or a plot or figure. But then also maybe, for example, in this case, in my current group, then the data set will be merged with some other data sets. And then its life cycle is going to be different in a sense that then it's going to be yeah integrated with these different data sets. And then we'll need to... Again, maybe do selected and selected and filtered and potentially be a small figure or just a few numbers in a paper. When it comes to data pipelines, I think that it is always much better to have reproducible data pipelines and to have reproducible workflows rather than keeping the data sets in all these different small stages, intermediate processes. So, for example, we would always want to keep raw data and we would not want to change it. And then when we maybe do some bigger transformations, we want to keep its children, quote-unquote. But then we would not want to keep every single one intermediate dataset. And then, yeah, as I said, they can be reused and also versioned and shared. Depending on the study, the dataset does not really have like uh, the end of the lifetime Maybe, you know, in a few years' time or or several years, or maybe who knows when it can be again reused. So that's a good question. I will need to think more about it.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I guess data sets are not really you don't really have a life cycle because they're like immortal beings that will, if they're useful, they'll live forever, but maybe the the bad ones will get yeah, lost but- in an archive somewhere. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. That's why there is also a big community on data preservation. We cannot know how valuable a past data set can be, right? There are many stories where a data set that was collected like years ago, like now find a completely new purpose and are found very valuable. But it is something that we do not know and we, we are not able to know. So that's why we want to keep and preserve as much data sets as we can. And I think they are even like much more straightforward to preserve in some sense than code. Code is much more fragile and harder to preserve and re-execute in the future. So that's why your work on data container on, on virtual containers is really valuable.
0: So aside from the languages Python and R, are there specific open source projects that you want to give a shout out to?
1: Yes. So I would like to mention PostgreSQL, the database. And also, I think that uh, someone who wants to work with data, SQL or SQL is a really great resource. So, for example, uh, we have, so I said we work with very different data sets, but then in some cases, it is much better to have a database, to have a data platform for the data sets that are constantly reused and that are constantly being used in the group. So that's why, for example, in in my group, we developed this database uh, for this kind of like canonical data sets. And we don't want to create a new pipeline or to use Pandas or R for every single change in the maybe initial conditions of data set. So we want to have something that is going to, to work in most cases, and that is then Postgres SQL. And that one is free and open source and amazing for academic purposes. Then also, I know that when it comes to workflows, I would like to mention maybe Apache Airflow as also a good resource and then virtual containers and other automation tools are great. And sometimes it is very easy to create automatized workflow. It just needs maybe like one additional file to capture the workflow and also remove this ambiguity on what scripts should run first and what second and what third. So that can be really hard for users sometimes to decipher.
0: You have me kind of pondering what we can better do in the research software engineer community to champion and support the role of data engineers or just create awareness. Like as you were talking, one thing that came to my mind is that I look around the RC community and I, I could probably guess the kind of data that people work with, but I don't really know. And it would be really interesting to just have like a data survey. What kind of data do you work with? What open access data are you working with? And kind of map that landscape and then figure out maybe where there could be data engineers valued, but there aren't any. It just seems like something that we don't know that I just personally would, would like to know. And I think it would be useful.
1: I agree. I think that would be very useful. And also I feel that there is there are a lot of points of discussion when it comes to you know capturing data pipelines and workflows, and these are kind of like, you know, not really a real software package. But they are also not really just a script or two. So they kind of like maybe need more attention. I know that, for example, there are some templates how one can structure data workflow. Uh, For example, with SnakeMake, I saw that. That was really good. But then it is not often intuitive for researchers, for grad students, for people who, you know, major in something completely different to immediately start to use this tools that look very much like software engineering. So there is definitely a lot of discussion points that we can brainstorm and improve how to create these workflows in an intuitive way, maybe in a hierarchical way. So maybe with some first starting with some like easy steps and then kind of like increasing the complexity. complexity. I hope that makes sense. And also I would like to mention so there was a RSC collaborations workshop and that. The workshop was in the uk i think based so everything was like really early in the morning but the program was really interesting and it was really interesting for me as someone who is working mostly with data so there was a lot of talks on this like overlap obviously between research and software engineering but there was also talks on like reproducibility and i think that uh, that was great so i think that there is already a lot of things that are interesting in the community but also some things definitely would require more discussion and there is room for brainstorming. So if anyone wants to, to do that, we can bring brainstorm together.
0: I totally think we should. And with respect to Snake Make, you make a really good point. I develop a lot for SnakeMake, so I know it fairly well. And the community that uses SnakeMake is very biology heavy, which means that there's a lot of these things called wrappers that are really easy to just like insert into your workflow and Easier for someone that is familiar with those tools, like SAM tools and that kind of thing. But there's entire domains that are not represented in Snake make, just because nobody has probably ever just like asked or looked into it. And so it would be really interesting to kind of engage with our community and kind of find the people that may be falling through the cracks with respect to just really struggling to make some of these data processing pipelines and then making some new Snake Make wrappers, for example. I think that would be really fun. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think that typically, you know, the most straightforward for uh, early career researchers and students is kind of like the structure where it is clear what scripts need to be executed first, second, third. So maybe there will be some numbering or some sort of like annotation like that. But then, you know, for this kind of like more advanced workflows, the repository structure is more like software package. So then we kind of like don't really have the middle ground there so that is definitely something to to talk about to think about to maybe create this like hierarchical system where one can increase the complexity maybe add different things also depending on the domain so that was a good point yeah
0: we're coming up on time i have just a few more questions What are three pieces of advice? So let's say that someone comes up to you and they just need like three quick bullet points of like, what are best practices for being a data engineer? I am not a data engineer. Please give me three quick tips that are going to help me. One, two, three, go. So the first
1: one, I would say capture environment, capture runtime environment. That one is a really huge one. I think that that one is actually what causes the most problems, Uh, Also with the experiments when I was like re-executing code from Dataverse, but also, you know, now when I reuse the code on HPC, it is really hard to find this like runtime environment that was used for specific code script. So I think that is like the messy one is like export your runtime environment. That's kind of like just to understand how to re-execute each script. I think also, you know, documentation, 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 that one is a really big one. So our readme files that are informative and that where you can understand what was happening and that you can understand what are the initial points and what are the end points of the data processes. So that's an important one. And I think finally, automation, that one is Also an important one, I would say automation really helps you also debug some of the things that you think maybe worked and then you need to maybe create instead of long fixed paths, you need to create relative paths. You need to also make sure that your steps chain well together. So I think automation, not only that it automatizes the whole process, but it also serves as a testing tool for creating this pipeline.
0: Okay, final question. What do you like and dislike about living in the States? Well, okay.
1: The first thing that I really like is that everyone speaks English. (laughs) So I was living in all different places. I was living in France, in Switzerland, in the UK. Okay, UK also, they speak. English with a English accent. But I think that in the States, somehow me and I think maybe the rest of Europe are very much influenced by the American English. And also we watch the movies and the music. So this is like a much more familiar accent to us. So kind of like everything feels more familiar in that sense. Also, people are really friendly. Okay, is there something that I really dislike? There are, of course, some things it's really far away from Europe. That's one thing that I maybe dislike. But yeah, I think that living in a bubble such as, for example, Boston University campuses, it's really, it's really nice. It's really cool. And I think it has been really fun.
0: Fantastic. So Anna, it was such a pleasure chatting with you. I think data engineering is such an invaluable skill. And I'm really glad that we had our conversation today. And I do think we should kind of brainstorm and think about how to better engage with the RSE community about data engineering and try to figure out and map our particular communities. So thank you for coming on RSC Stories today.
1: Thank you so much. Uh, This was a really great conversation and you really gave me some things to think about.